0: And have eternal life with you. Now we ask that our hearts be opened and that you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Hey, my name is Jesse. Uh, If we've not had the opportunity to meet, uh, welcome. Good to have you. I see little baby Bo here for the first time. I'm going to say hi to Alana's new little baby there. Um, don't touch it. They want to keep it healthy, right? That's why they're in there. <laughs> you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and one of the guys will hand you one. Turn to Mark. Gospel of Mark, Chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. couple uh, announcements to make you aware. One, if you are new and you have yet to download our app, we do have an app that is very user-friendly, has all of our information in that app, all the things that we're doing, all the events that are happening There is quite a bit that happens at our church on a regular basis, so the app is a great way to be alerted. If you turn on alerts, it's a great way to take notes during the sermon if you want. It's a great way to listen online. I know there's several people who watch online via that app as well as the webpage. Uh, uh, There's a place to give on there as well if you want to give digitally uh, and and all of that, so make sure you download that. And then a couple things just want to make you aware of. One is VBS is coming up, so Our Vacation Bible School, For all of our kids ages 3 through 12, if they're not signed up, please do so. You can do it in the info booth back here. You can do it on the app. You can do it on uh, the webpage sbctruckey.com. So make sure if you want to help, if you have kids that want to come. Still looking for volunteers. We do have, I think, almost all our major positions filled, which is really great. In addition to that, I just want to say thank you. We put a call out a couple weeks ago for our food pantry there have been a lot of needs coming through the church recently it's getting warmer uh gas gets more expensive people have needs meeting all kinds of really great individuals who uh, need the hope of jesus but also need some tangible help and so we provide that for people who come in one of the things we provide as i mentioned is a food pantry We're, we're one of the only places in town that has this uh and so it gets used up quite a bit. We were running really, really low. We barely had anything left, other than I think a couple beans in a in a can, and no one wanted the beans. So, uh, thank you. We're completely stocked. So I thought we're gonna have to make a few announcements. You guys have done really well. You, 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 and we got all the the right fixins. We've got good uh, spaghettios with meat in there, and all the good the good stuff. So. Uh, toothpaste I think and some other things we get some good things in there for people so thank you for doing that Uh, don't give us any more for now because we're totally totally uh, full okay so if you did go out and get something hold on to it we'll use our stuff and then you can bring us your stuff okay and then one of the things that we uh, uh, support or one of the guys we support is Travis Owen down in Mexico if you're not familiar Travis and I went to high school together went to a school of ministry together he ended up in Mexico in Mexico serving orphans serving widows helping out a lot of orphanages and over a period of years they decided you know what god is calling us to build an orphanage and to start housing kids ourselves. and so they, they they they've literally gone from a place where they had no land they've purchased the land they're building on that land and i wanted to show you guys an update because we have given oh man A lot of money I don't even know the total amount but quite a bit of funds to them as well as people and resources so go ahead and check out the quick little video from Travis and Amber so you can see what some of your offerings are going towards
1: hi Sierra Bible Church this is Travis and Amber Owen with So Ministries and we wanted to say thank you so much for your continued partnership and your prayers and we did a quick video to update you on all that God's been doing here check this out our first phase of construction is going very well The second floor walls of the baby house are now completed and our local work crew is now working to frame out all the window openings, weatherproof them and prepare for window installation. The baby house is looking amazing, we are so excited about the progress. We have also been working on our visitor housing, connecting water and electricity lines, finishing the retaining wall, working on the kitchen, as well as installing tile flooring and tile in the showers. We recently hosted a team that built our deck and stair railings, they installed doors and baseboards, and it is looking incredible. We are so thankful as this provides an amazing opportunity for our missionary guests to stay on site and help with the future phases of construction, as well as ministering to the children that will be in our care. In addition, we have continued ministering to the kids at the orphanages that we are partnered with. As this keeps us connected and we have great relationships with these kids, it is an amazing part of our ministry, and we can't wait to have children on site at the Blessing Children's Home. Thank you so much for your partnership, and we hope to see you here soon. Thank you so much, Sierra Bible Church. We are so grateful for your partnership and your continued support. For more information, you can check out our website at org. God bless you. Thank you. Awesome.
0: So... <clears throat> Some of you uh, may not be aware, but several years back, my wife and I, we took a trip down to Mexico to see Travis and Amber stood on this little hill that had absolutely nothing on it. No roads, no electricity, no running water, nothing. And stood on that land uh, that they had just purchased at that time and prayed, Lord, we know that you want to be faithful to Travis and Amber and through them and, and that you care about the work they're doing. And we prayed for a day like this where some buildings would be popping up and they've got running water, they've got electricity, they've got a home for those who want to visit and help out, and they're looking to start housing their own kids here pretty soon. So continue to pray for them, and we'll continue to give updates as needed. Now, in this particular gospel, uh, in this gospel of Mark, it is the uh, what we believe is the eyewitness account of Peter. And Peter has basically ended up in a conversation with John Mark, and Mark has written this firsthand account of what Peter has seen. We have seen the amazingness of Jesus. We have seen his power over the natural and calming the storm. We have seen Jesus's power over the demoniac and over the spiritual realm. And we have seen the crowds pressing in Around the Messiah. They want to see his miracles. They want to hear his words because he's preaching and teaching in a way that has been unheard of. For the last few weeks, we really have been spending our time with Christ at the Sea of Galilee as he has been traveling between both shores doing the work of the ministry. Now in chapter six, we will see a shift in the story. Jesus begins to travel away from the Sea of Galilee to the place in which is his hometown. This place is called Nazareth. It's about 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is returning home in the portion that we will look at this morning for a purpose. We know that it is a purpose specifically for ministry because he brought his disciples with him, the text will tell us. This is no ordinary visit home. This is to go home to prepare and to train His disciples for the work of the ministry. What's quite interesting about chapter six is up to this point, we really have been focusing on. We've really been seeing the accessibility and the popularity of the Christ. What is interesting in this this portion of scripture is the tone of the text begins to change. Jesus heads 25 miles south to his hometown. Surely, in his humanity, he's expecting a homecoming. He's expecting those in his home city, probably, in his humanity to welcome him, to celebrate him, to rejoice that their home celebrity has finally returned to their little village of Nazareth. Now, I'm still uh, a, a Truckee local enough to remember, I'm 43 years old, and some of you will remember this. I think Mr. John and Miss, Mrs. Baggio will remember this. Do you remember... I hate to say it in church, but it is what it is. When we used to have our own local shirts that said, where in the hell is Truckee, California? <laughs> Do you remember those shirts? You don't remember them? Oh, well, it's because of my parents. That's how I grew up. I wore that shirt to school every day. No, there literally was a shirt that, that that's what it said. The Truckee, California was not a place that was necessarily seen along with Lake Tahoe. Truckee was its own little entity. And we know over the years that Truckee has grown to what it is today, base camp for a bigger life, that many people, to see Lake Tahoe and to visit the resorts they go to, they come to our hometown. Truckee is busy, and it's bustling. I remember, though, Truckee, when it was just little, much like Nazareth. In fact, it's important for us to note, as Jesus goes home, this place, there's very little mention of it. There's no mention of it in the Old Testament. It's obscure. It's small. It's, it's amongst the hills. It's not very well known. In fact, one, one author within the, the text of the Bible will literally said, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, surely. Nazareth was at the least amount of people, 150 in population. At the most, 500. Everybody knew who Jesus was. They had grown up with Jesus. They have seen him talk, they've seen him walk, they know his background, they know his family, and they respond, as we will see here in a few moments, with an incredible amount of a lack of faith or unbelief. What we have in this particular passage is two things that I think are important for us to see. One is the implications of faith, and the other one is the implications of a lack of faith. We will see that because of a lack of faith, Jesus is not able to respond in his hometown, maybe as he could have if their faith was strong. But what we're going to see in Nazareth, the second part is the persecution. I want you to see two things, faith and persecution, or faith and rejection. Jesus, in his hometown of 500 people, will not be seen in a way of rejoicing. He will not be celebrated. He rather will be seen as one that is rejected. Why? To prepare his disciples for the next phase of their ministry. In the next phase, remember Mark reads like a comic book. You have the first little block, if you will. Jesus will teach and preach, we will see here in just a moment, in the synagogue, and he will see their crazy lack of belief. And then... We will see in the second segment jesus commissions his disciples to go preach the same gospel he is preaching and to be ready and prepared for rejection they will be rejected as well we don't have time to get into it this morning but then the next segment will be the beheading of john the baptist chapter six takes a dark tone jesus is preaching the hometown will reject him The disciples will be sent out. They will face rejection as well. And John the Baptist himself will receive the ultimate penalty of rejection, death. Have you ever felt rejected? Rejected because you didn't belong to a particular group of people? Rejection maybe because of your faith and what you believe? All of you are well aware of the Supreme Court's ruling at this point, I'm sure. Right? There has been a declaration by the largest court in the land for a sanctity of life. On the flip side of that, <clears throat> it's good that you celebrate life. That's a good thing. So with the Lord. On the flip side of that, you now see those who disagree with our stance or the Christian stance beginning to kind of pour out the... Judgment and lack of appreciation for those who may disagree with the Word of God or with Jesus Himself. In fact, this week I saw a statement from an individual How dare you shove your religion down my throat? How dare you, Christians, do what you are doing? There are groups of people who are blaming you for what they would say is the crucifixion of society and culture itself. I would argue society hates sin, hates to be confronted with sin, wants to justify their sin in every way possible, and whenever the light shines, well, it's easy for them to reject the Christian. In this particular case, we will see Jesus teaches, he will be rejected, and so will the disciples. May I ask you the question this morning? Will your faith, be strong enough in the Lord to face the rejection of society, to face the minimalization of Christianity. You, my friends, are not going to be popular. You are not popular in the culture. You will never be popular in the culture, and you definitely will never be in a place of power. For the world is not changed through power, but through faith in Christ. Let's read together. If you have the ability this morning, if you're new We stand for the reading of Scripture simply because we want to open up our hearts and our minds and honor that this is God speaking to us. Verse 1, chapter 6. Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How much mighty are the works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Lord, may we hear from you, from your holy word this morning, in a way that comforts, encourages, strengthens, gives resolve, and even at times where needed, brings the conviction needed to run back to you. We trust you for it in Jesus' name, the church said. Amen. may be seated. they stated, the tone changes. Where? On the 25-mile journey to Nazareth. Take note, as Jesus arrives in Nazareth, as was the common practice of the day, since Jesus was a rabbi, he is invited to preach, to teach in the synagogue. This was a normal custom for rabbis when they entered in the area. This is a little peculiar, though, because Jesus has no real, true rabbinical training. Remember, he grew up as a carpenter. And as he comes into this town and preaches within the synagogue, this is what he says. It comes from Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is his hometown. As was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up and he read untrained rabbinical Jesus grabs a scroll we are told in this passage it is the scroll of Isaiah in verse 17 of Luke chapter 4 he unwraps this scroll he unrolls it and he reads from the text this passage from the prophet Isaiah the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Okay, do you capture it? This is Jesus. He's in the temple. He's an untrained rabbi. He opens up an ancient scroll. He reads from the scroll the prophecy of the Messiah to come, who will liberate those who are in slavery to sin, who are blind, that they'll see those who are oppressed. Will be given freedom. And then Jesus lays down the hammer after this particular teaching. Verse 21 He then said to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What is Jesus saying? This ancient rabbinical text of the Jews that predicts the Messiah? That is me. This is Jesus stating in the synagogue in his hometown, the one that you grew up with, the guy that you've known all of your life. Yes, me, Jesus the carpenter, I'm the Messiah. Now, could you imagine in your hometown, wherever that is, little popular Bobby, maybe Sue or some other individual from your school, your high school, your junior high school, standing up and, and reading from an old ancient text and saying, This is talking about me. As C.S. Lewis says that such, such kind of, of, of speaking would lead you to say that this man is truly either a liar or a lunatic, or he is who he said he is. The response to said claims, the response to said teaching, the normal kind of response that most people would have of such teaching. Look at verse two. It says they were astonished. They're taken back. Literally, literally the teaching here, the, the word, astonished, literally in our day and age, the equivalent, mind-blown. Their minds have been blown. And other places in the Gospels were told, told that, that of Jesus' teaching, that it was astonishingly authoritative. That it was knowledgeable, beyond knowledgeable of any other person. That it was powerful and unmatched. As one pastor w- ha- said as I was reading this week, that Jesus' teaching was characterized by unparalleled clarity, veracity, wisdom, so that it stunned even the most learned scribes of the day. Here is an untrained rabbi in the synagogue teaching their response. Astonishment is number one. Verse three gives us the second response. They're offended. Do you see it? Isn't this a good cultural word for our day? I'm offended. It, w- it wasn't until the last two years ago that, that, that I learned about a new kind of offense called a microaggression. This blows my mind as a kid who grew up in the 90s. That some teeny little small thing is offensive. Our culture is offended by anything and everything. And in lieu of the recent court ruling, do everyone a favor, do not go on Twitter. It is a toxic cesspool of hate, vitriol, negativity. It is no place for the Christian to dig in its mud and its mire. It is only a place if you go, you should go to encourage other people to find the Christ. Don't argue because it doesn't work. No one has ever been convinced in a Twitter argument to change their mind. So don't do it. Jesus' teaching causes offense. One commentator says, maybe at best or at worst, it's indifference. This word offense, as we look up in its original language, literally means to scandalize. They are scandalized by Jesus. They are offended by Jesus. They are, the word here is repelled by Jesus. This comforts me. Because Jesus was just as offensive in the first century church as he is in 2022. People will still find him offensive and one of the things that causes so much offense, the reason they're so offended is because of their lack of faith. That's what the text says. Jesus says this, look, says he could do no great thing because of their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. Take note of this. This is, the fun, this is my fun, nerdy part of the Bible, right? I told you I like to mark my Bible up. Now, if you were me and you were sitting at my desk this week, listening to some really cool song, you would take your pen and you would look down at that particular particular text where it says that he marveled at their unbelief and you would circle that word. You can do it now if you want. Go ahead, I'll wait. Marveled, you circle why is that important? Because there's another word very closely associated with that word in the text and it's in verse 2. They heard him and they were what? Astonished. Here's what you're seeing within this interaction in the synagogue. Jesus and the people are both dumbfounded by one another. This is what's happening in the church. Those who are sitting in the seat are going, I don't know if this guy knows what he's talking about. And the guy up at the pulpit saying, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. It's just like every Sunday, right? (laughs) This is what's happening. Their minds are blown and they're offensive. That word offense means to cause someone to feel deeply hurt in a shame, guilt culture in part what his family and what these individuals in Nazareth are saying is, this man is bringing an embarrassment to us. This man is shameful to us. They are embarrassed because of their lack of faith, they are embarrassed of Jesus. I mean, if we're all really honest, you probably have felt that embarrassment about Jesus yourself. Have you ever been in a public restaurant and you get that one charismatic guy who says, let's pray together. And then he prays and then there's no amen because he's being silent because he's waiting for everyone at the table to pray. Have you ever been on the street corner with someone who ran into somebody and started to share their faith? Have you ever been offended or embarrassed by Jesus because of a lack of faith? This is in essence what's happening here. Now I want you to see the power of unbelief. What I'm going to present before you this morning is that there is great power to unbelief. There is a contagiousness to unbelief that spreads. And the implications of unbelief are dramatic and they're dangerous. On the flip side, I want you to see to a certain degree, I'm going to to share some of it for next week, the benefits of belief and faith. Jesus is practicing his faith by teaching in the synagogue. He will be rejected because of, of people's lack of belief. And then after this, Jesus will take each of his disciples, pair them up in twos, and send them out to be rejected by sharing their faith. So let's take a look at one of the main reasons why they're offended. Do you know why they're so offended? Well, we're given five questions that show us why they're so offended by Jesus. I'm sorry, did I say four? Or did I say five? There's five. Good. I'm glad we're with you here. First few of the questions give us An understanding of one of the major implications of of having unbelief. When you have unbelief, this is first implication number one, it obscures the obvious. A lack of faith in Christ, a lack of faith in Jesus, obscures the obvious. What do I mean by this? They ask some really simple questions, and the answer is quite simple. Listen to the questions Where did he get these things? What is this wisdom that he has? How does he perform these miracles? What is the obvious answer? God. Right? Their lack of faith is squishing their ability to see that the most obvious answer is the right answer. Where does he get his power? How does he have this wisdom? He's God. Duh. A lack of faith obscures the obvious. They cannot attribute the healings to anything other than quite possibly maybe even Satan. And you can see the healings before you. Up until this point, we've seen several. Peter's mother-in-law. There's many in Capernaum who are healed. A leper, a paralyzed man, a man with a deformed hand. More individuals again in chapter 3. We saw the storm being calmed. We saw the demoniac being healed, the woman who bled for 12 years healed, and the little girl raised from the dead. Jesus has performed the sovereign acts that only God can perform. They ask the questions in their unbelief. Hey, how does he do it? The Lord. I had a really uh, a good illustration in my own life for this as I sat down several years back for, my ordination process and when you do that as a young man they surround you with all these older men to intimidate you men who've been reading the bible for far longer than you men who've been well studied for longer than you most of them are grandparents in the room and they're looking at you with their their wise steely eyes and they're asking you very difficult questions that you know the answer to but because you're in the moment you forget right what is atonement uh it's just the thing that Jesus did on the cross. It's good. It's real good. Right? And after sharing my testimony and, and, and sharing my faith and, and sharing where I'm at with Christ, this, this old guy literally been in ministry for 30 plus years. He looks across the table at me. And after hearing my story, he literally, this was his question. His one question after hearing all that I had to share, this was his question. How in the world are you here and not in prison or in a ditch (laughs) to which I felt much like Jesus in this moment a lack of faith obscures the obvious you 30 30 year experienced guy are going to ask me why I am a miracle well it's because of Jesus I wanted to make him feel really dumb for it why would you ask such a stupid question but here are these individuals asking the question why are they so dumbfounded at the obvious? Here's why people, people are offended at the simplicity of Christ, people are offended at the ordinariness of Christ. Take note of what they say. Isn't this the carpenter? The, the word for carpenter, just to burst some of your bubbles, because some of you have thought, you know, that Jesus was a, a carpenter and he worked with wood, right, because we're trucky folk, and we know what it's like to work with, you know, carpenters and truckie. They They work with wood, and they work with hammers, and they work with nails, and that's what they do. No, not a tecton. That's what Jesus was, a tecton. You can look it up in the original language. That's what he was, a tecton. What is, what is a tecton in Jesus' day? Yeah, carpenter, but probably more of a stone worker. Most of the things in Israel were made of stone. But the reality was, is that a, a tecton wasn't just known for stone working. He probably did some woodworking as well. It literally, more than anything, would be actually more like your ordinary handyman of today. You know a guy who, who, who's a jack of all trades, a master of none kind of guy? He can do plumbing, he can do drywall, he can do a little bit of woodwork, he can carve out a stone. This is who Jesus was in Nazareth. Why is this important? He probably, along with his dad, were the only tectons in Nazareth. They're the only carpenters. Translation, isn't this just the common working class guy? Translation, I'm pretty sure Jesus was the one who changed out my, uh, my toilet the, last week. Right? He's the handyman. There's a few of us in Tahoe don't know how to do handy things. So we call up people and we say, come do the handy things for me. This is what Jesus was. And this surely were the thoughts of the public. This is just a common man. And oh, look. Oh, look. Isn't he the son of Mary? Now, first sight, that might seem well enough, but not in the Jewish culture. And the Jewish culture a young man was always preceded by name by his father. That was the respectful way to do it. A respectful thing to have said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter? Nope. Isn't this the son of Mary? There's two conclusions we can lead here. One is, probably at this point, Joseph has passed away. Number two, the way that this is written, and the way that it is meant to be read, is equivalent to the individuals in the synagogue saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of a woman who has slept around? Isn't this Jesus, the bastard child? This is a, a direct attack against this person who is preaching the gospel. Unbelief, a lack of faith will obscure the obvious and it will distort The obvious. Isn't he just a carpenter? Isn't he just the son of Mary? They were despised at the ordinariness of Jesus. I mean, think of it. How many times have you even ran through this scenario in your mind? You've been a Christian your whole life. You've served and you're lying in your deathbed and you're about to go meet your maker. And you think to yourself, I've lived a life of faith. I've ran the race. I'm finishing it well. And then right next to you, they wheel in a a criminal. He's on his deathbed. He's murdered several people in his path of life. And he's there in the hospital with you. Just happens to be a coincidence. And he's about to die too. You're both there on your deathbed. And, And he hears you speaking of Christ. And he hears you speaking of the forgiveness of Christ. And the mercy of Christ, and how Christ came for the sick and not just the well. And he hears it and he says to you, I want to follow this Christ. And you lead him in a prayer and you guide him and you share with him what Christ has done that he's forgiven you of sins and he desires to be with you in eternity. And in his mind, he can almost hear the same words of the thief on the cross Today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, our world will say, that's not fair. I love being a parent, and I love when my kids say, something's not fair. Because that's the gospel opportunity moment, right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Little Peyton comes in, it's not fair. You don't want fair. And they all know at this point, because I'm a pastor, and I've been pastoring them for the, since day one, they all know, why isn't it fair? Peyton, why isn't it fair? What's fair, Peyton? I deserve hell. <laughs> That's right. Everything else is grace. You don't want fair, my friends. You want grace. The crowd says, is this not this bastard's son and are not, and just for those of you maybe have a Catholic background, you've been taught all through Catholicism that Mary was a virgin. Well, the evidence is against this. It's in the text. Obviously, Mary has had other children. It mentions it here. Are this, is this not his brothers we grew up with, and is this not his sisters that we grew up with? This is just an ordinary guy. You see, faith, a lack of faith, obscures the obvious And it distorts it. And a lack of faith also starts to elevate the non-essential or the non-important. That's number two. And the first point, we see that a lack of faith allows us to really see clearly who Jesus is. It it keeps us from answering the simple questions of the text. But it also will elevate the non-important. How many of you have shared your faith with somebody, and instead of talking about a relationship with Christ forgiveness of sins from Christ, reconciliation with Christ, the, the, the reality of the double exchange. He takes your sin. He gives you, you his righteousness, like all these beautiful things that are in the gospel that Jesus does for us. We want to share all these great, beautiful things. And, and, and when you start to share them, inevitably, they, they will always, those who don't know the Lord, you might be here this morning, you automatically will go to something that really isn't that important out of the gate. Well, what about same-sex marriage? What about abortion? What about climate change? What about evolution? Right? Anytime you want to talk about your faith, that's where everybody wants to go. Let's talk about all of these fringe things that are not essential to salvation. Now, when I say fringe, I'm not saying they're not important. They're important. They tell us about who God is. But no one's going to see the importance of God until you get them to see the importance of the forgiveness of their sins that come from Christ alone. The first thing we've got to do is change people's hearts so you then can change the behavior. Religion's horrible with this. This is how you know you're part of religion. Change your behavior. Be with Christ. Sit with him in the synagogue with faith and let him change you. And once he's changed your heart, you want to go and change people's hearts, not just their behavior. I don't care if my kids, that's not totally true, but I don't care if my kids all only do the right thing. I want them to have a love for the right thing. And that doesn't come by telling them all the do's and the don'ts. And what this crowd is doing in their lack of faith is they're elevating all of these non-essential things. Isn't he a carpenter? Who cares? He's still Jesus. Doesn't he have brothers and sisters? Who cares? He's still Jesus. But didn't he grow up in a small town? Who cares? He's still Jesus. He hasn't been trained like all the other rabbis. Who cares? He's still Jesus. And if we're going to share the gospel and get people to have faith, we first deal with their faith in Christ. Now, I love evangelism. Many of you know that. And when people go down those side eddies, just so you know by way of equipping you, I never go, oh, let's talk about that. I go, no, 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 no. Ignore that for a minute. Let's not even talk about that. Let's just figure out who Jesus is. And if we can figure that out, then if your faith starts to come alive in Christ, then we can deal with all this other stuff. Which leads me to number three, unbelief rejects simplicity. Right? We want answers. I hear it all the time. When I first, uh, actually, Tammy will remember this. I remember when I first became a youth pastor because Tammy is a very organized gal and she's very, very, like, she gets every, all ducks in order. Do you remember this, Tammy? It was our first trip. And she said to me, there's a lot of divisions in the youth group. Tell me what rules you're gonna put in place. Do you remember that conversation? Similar, yeah. My story was probably a little different than your story. All right, what are, what are the rules? What are the rules? Tell me, tell me what to do, just tell me what to do. Remember, all throughout the gospel, tell me what I gotta to do to be saved. Right? Aren't those, aren't those the questions that, that you see throughout? What, what do I, what, tell me what I need to sell. Tell me who I need to know. Tell me where to go. Tell me what mountain to climb. Tell me what—we complicate things. Jesus in this moment is trying to share with us that salvation, as well as our sanctification, is founded on the simple faith of the object of our faith, which is Christ. The object matters far more even than your faith. And you've heard me say this before. I've made the argument before that no one in culture, no one in society, no one on the planet is worship neutral. And you've heard me explain this reality of worship neutral that we all give ourselves to something and whatever we give ourselves to is what we become like. Because you were created in the image of God, you were created to give yourself to something. Like when pain comes, hurt comes, depression comes, we'll all run and sing. And not like literal singing, metaphorically. For some of us, we know, oh, times are hard. I got to give myself to something. So you give yourself to maybe drugs or alcohol, and then you become depressed and filled with anxiety. Or maybe you give yourself to shopping, or you give yourself to perusing online, or you give yourself to some other thing. You become like that thing. I think one of the things that this shows us in the text is not only are we worship neutral, we can't be worship neutral You can't be faith neutral. As much as you'll give your heart and adoration to something, you will give your faith to something. And to be filled with faith, to have faith, is to be human. Did you know that? It's a human characteristic. You can't can't live without faith. Don't believe me? How many of you trekked the brake line of your car when you drove here this morning? Anybody? How many of you looked under your seat to make sure it was going to work this morning? Right? You couldn't live without faith. Your life would be chaos if it wasn't for faith. Right? You, you wouldn't use soap if it wasn't for faith. Well, you might have some evidence there. I got a teenage boy. We're trying to encourage him to use his soap. <laughs> you will believe in something. You will give your faith to something. And if it isn't Jesus... It's going to be something else. Faith, unfaith, unbelief rejects simplicity, but it also attacks the messenger. Notice he has no honor. There's no honor for Jesus here. That that word for honor literally means to give value to. And as I mentioned, they're both dumbfounded by each other. He's astonished at their lack of faith, And they're they're astonished at what he is saying. And there are only two places where Jesus is astonished or amazed. This one in Mark, he's baffled that they don't believe. And the other one is in Luke 7, 9, when a Roman centurion comes and he believes that God can heal from a distance. And Jesus marvels at this man's faith. One spot he marvels for faith and the other spot he marvels because their lack of faith. Here's what I want you to see this morning, unbelief always ends in destruction. Unbelief always finds itself in a place of hopelessness. As you can see here, their lack of belief. It says Jesus was unable to do anything. It's kind of funny how it's how it how it's worded, right? Because it says he could do no mighty work there, except he laid hands on a few sick people and he healed them. It's like no big deal, right? Like Jesus heals people and it's just no big deal. But there's no other major miracles that occur within the city of Nazareth. Jesus instead goes to Nazareth to train his disciples. The whole purpose of this is that his disciples will see what it is like to preach the gospel and to face opposition because that is what's going to happen to them. You remember, Jesus says, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Jesus always calls his people in that he can send them out. And that's what happens in verse 7. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And he called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two. And why? I'm going to read more of it next week, I think, because of time's sake. But I want you to see when he sends them out, he sends them out two by two. And look at verse 8. As he sends them out to preach the gospel... He gives them authority, it says in verse seven, over unclean spirits and to heal. And in verse eight, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Good news, you can wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. Why? Because he's training his disciples to have what Nazareth didn't have, faith. Okay, guys, I'm going to send you out two by two. You need two by two because you need accountability. It's also how witnesses established that this is really what happened. There was two of them. When you go on this preaching tour, that's what this is. This is a preaching tour. Another way to say it is it's a, it's a faith tour. What's really interesting about the list of what they can and cannot take, it's very similar to the same list given to the Israelites to leave Pharaoh's grip and into promised land. This is a new exodus that Jesus is preparing them for. This is a short-term missions trip. Anyone ever been on a short-term mission trip? You know if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, it's usually far more impactful for the person going than the people you went for. Amen? This is what this is. Short-term missions trip. Take no bag, no money. You're only to have your staff for protection. Don't take two tunics. That's like a sleeping bag. You're going to find a place to stay. God's going to provide the place to stay. Don't take food. God's going to provide the food. Don't take money. God's going to provide the finances and means that you need. Just go by faith to propagate the gospel. And they go. Later, later Jesus will actually tell them, long-term mission, take a sword and get some food. But that's not the case for this training session. This training session is Jesus saying, look, preach the gospel, preach the word of God in opposition to, in the face of negativity, in the face of rejection, have faith in me to provide everything necessary because you and I are all called to be preachers for the kingdom of God. We all have a calling. And the apostle Paul knew this calling. Later, we'll see Paul is called away from his religious lifestyle into a relationship with Jesus to propagate the gospel in the New Testament. If you have time, turn to Acts chapter 20 and we'll close with this. And I want you to see Paul's understanding of his calling. Now remember, God calls us in to send us out. God will be faithful to call his people, to equip them as he does his disciples, to give them his authority, as the text says, that they would be fruitful. But look at Paul's calling. He understood it. And I read this because I want you to understand your calling as well. Behold, verse 22, chapter 20. Behold, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained. That word there literally means to be bound to, to be tied to. What Paul is saying is, I have been tethered by the Spirit, I've been anchored by the Spirit. Not knowing as he goes, right? He's been called in to be called out. Not knowing what will happen to me there. You seeing. I, I got to live by faith. I'm constrained. I'm tethered to the spirit. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to my place of calling. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. I mean, that is the call to the Christian. I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. What we do know from the text In chapter 6, John the Baptist will be beheaded. The disciples are going to have to shake their shoes off in a certain place. We'll talk about that more next week. But he goes on and he says this, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city. This This is Paul. I'm called. I don't know what's going to happen to me. Well, I do know, actually, he says, imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's so in love with Christ. This is one of the ways you know you can believe in Christianity. This man was a Jew to the core. He would never turn his faith uh, over, uh, away from Judaism. This guy was more educated than anyone you could ever think or imagine in the ways of Judaism. And this man hears from Christ, puts his faith in Christ. Christ changes his life, and he's ready to go face persecution and die. That's how strong this man's calling is every city I'll be imprisoned. Afflictions await me. But, he says, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. that? Yeah, I want to finish the race well. And you don't have to admit it this morning, but are you old this morning? Are you an old person this morning? I'm going to not make eye contact with anybody. <laughs> Is anybody aged here this morning? this is the call for all of those of you who would be elderly in the church that you would finish your course well because your soul is constrained tied to the spirit he goes on and says this ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God I've been tethered to share this gospel behold I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Church, Jesus has set the example. In chapter six, we see the movement away from the servant king to the suffering king. Jesus suffers sharing in his own hometown that others' faith will be made strong to give you an example of what it's like to live in the face of opposition and rejection. And our response is to be faith-filled, which is what we'll talk about more next week, like the disciples, and to be sent out to share this deep calling that we've been given by Jesus. Paul knew his life was not his own. And Paul was willing to be sent out even if that meant losing his life. There's an encouragement here for us that God's still building up a remnant of people to be faithful for his name. And that as we leave this place, we have the opportunity to bring God glory. For we've sat in the synagogue in faith with Christ and Christ has spoken And Christ has given us his authority and his gifting and his forgiveness and his mercy. And we can freely walk out this door with no condemnation, no guilt, no shame, and proclaim to a culture that's going to hate us for all of our peripheral views. And then when we get down to brass tacks and we say, okay, let's not talk about all this. Let's not talk about all these weird political things everyone wants to divide about. Do you know that you need forgiveness of sins? oh man, that's not controversial. You are a sinner and you're in need of reconciliation. Every human being's greatest need is to be reconciled to the one who made them. That is this lovely, beautiful, suffering servant, Jesus, that we all place our faith in and ask others to do the same. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, praise we leave here. You strengthen us to do the work of the ministry. Thank you that your word is true, that there's so much more in it than we could ever think or imagine. And I pray, Lord, that we would not respond in astonishment the way they did in chapter six, but we would respond in humble humility to be used by you. We trust you for that work, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said. If you profess that Jesus is king, you're part of that remnant. What an honor to be a child of God.
1: Won't you stand with us?